Old Masson, the caretaker of one of Salem's oldest and most neglected cemeteries, had a feud with the rats. Generations ago, they had come up from the wharves and settled in the graveyard, a colony of abnormally large rats. And when Masson had taken charge after the inexplicable disappearance of the former caretaker, he decided they must go. At first, he set traps for them and put poisoned food by their burrows. And later, he tried to shoot them, but it did no good. The rats stayed, multiplying and overrunning the graveyard with their ravenous hordes. They were large, even for the Mustecumanus, which sometimes measures 15 inches in length, exclusive of the naked pink and gray tail. Masson had caught glimpses of some as large as good-sized cats. And when, once or twice, the gravediggers had uncovered their burrows, the Maladorus tunnels were large enough to enable a man to crawl into them on his hands and knees. The ships that had come generations ago from distant ports to the rotting Salem wharves had brought strange cargoes. Mason wondered sometimes at the extraordinary size of the burrows. He recalled certain vaguely disturbing legends he had heard since coming to ancient, witch-haunted Salem. Tales of a moribund, inhuman life that was said to exist in forgotten burrows in the earth. The old days, when Cotton Mather had hunted down the evil cults that worshipped Hecate and the dark Magna Mater in frightful orgies, had passed. But dark gabled houses still leaned perilously toward each other over narrow cobbled streets, and blasphemous secrets and mysteries were said to be hidden in subterranean cellars and caverns, where forgotten pagan rites were still celebrated in defiance of law and sanity. Wagging their gray heads wisely, the elders declared that there were worse things than rats and maggots crawling in the unhallowed earth of the ancient Salem cemeteries. And then, too, there was this curious dread of the rats. Masson disliked and respected the ferocious little rodents, for he knew the danger that lurked in their flashing, needle-sharp fangs. But he could not understand the inexplicable horror which the oldsters held for deserted, rat-infested houses. He had heard vague rumors of ghoulish beings that dwelt far underground, and that had the power of commanding the rats, marshalling them like horrible armies. The rats, the old men whispered, were messengers between this world and the grim and ancient caverns far below Salem. Bodies had been stolen from graves for nocturnal subterranean feasts, they said. The myth of the Pied Piper is a fable that hides a blasphemous horror, and the black pits of Avernus have brought forth hell-spawned monstrosities that never venture into the light of day. Masson paid little attention to these tales. He did not fraternize with his neighbors, and in fact, did all he could to hide the existence of the rats from intruders. Investigation, he realized, 
would undoubtedly mean the opening of many graves. And while some of the gnawed, empty coffins could be attributed to the activities of the rats, Masson might find it difficult to explain the mutilated bodies that lay in some of the coffins. The purest gold is used in filling teeth, and this gold is not removed when a man is buried. Clothing, of course, is another matter, for usually the undertaker provides a plain broadcloth suit that is cheap and easily recognizable. But gold is another matter. And sometimes, too, there were medical students and less reputable doctors who were in need of cadavers, and not overscrupulous as to where these were obtained. So far, Masson had successfully managed to discourage investigation. He had fiercely denied the existence of the rats, even though they sometimes robbed him of his prey. Masson did not care what happened to the bodies after he had performed his gruesome thefts. But the rats inevitably dragged away the whole cadaver through the hole they gnawed in the coffin. The size of these burrows occasionally worried Masson. Then too, there was the curious circumstance of the coffins always being gnawed open at the end, never at the side or top. It was almost as if the rats were working under the direction of some impossibly intelligent leader. He now stood in an open grave and threw a last sprinkling of wet earth on the heap beside the pit. It was raining, a slow, cold drizzle that for weeks had been descending from soggy black clouds. The graveyard was a slough of yellow, sucking mud, from which the rain-washed tombstones stood up in irregular battalions. The rats had retreated to their burrows, and Masson had not seen one for days, but his gaunt, unshaven face was set in frowning lines. The coffin on which he was standing was a wooden one. The body had been buried several days earlier, but Masson had not dared to disinter it before. A relative of the dead man had been coming to the grave at intervals, even in the drenching rain. But he would hardly come at this late hour. No matter how much grief he might be suffering, Masson thought, grinning wryly. He straightened and laid the shovel aside. From a hill on which the ancient graveyard lay, he could see the lights of Salem flickering dimly through the downpour. He drew a flashlight from his pocket. He would need light now. Taking up the spade, he bent and examined the fastenings of the coffin. Abruptly, he stiffened. Beneath his feet, he sensed an unquiet stirring and scratching, as though something were moving within the coffin. For a moment, a pang of superstitious fear shot through Masson, and then rage replaced it as he realized the significance of the sound. The rats had forestalled him again. In a paroxysm of anger, Masson wrenched at the fastenings of the coffin. He got the sharp edge of the shovel under the lid 
and pried it up until he could finish the job with his hands. Then he sent the flashlight's cold beam darting down into the coffin. Rain spattered against the white satin lining. The coffin was empty. Masson saw a flicker of movement at the head of the case and darted the light in that direction. The end of the sarcophagus had been gnawed through and a gaping hole led into darkness. A black shoe, limp and dragging, was disappearing as Masson watched, and abruptly he realized that the rats had forestalled him only by a few minutes. He fell on his hands and knees and made a hasty clutch at the shoe, and the flashlight incontinently fell into the coffin and went out. The shoe was tugged from his grasp, and he heard a sharp, excited squealing, and then he had the flashlight again and was darting its light into the burrow. It was a large one. It had to be, or the corpse could not have been dragged along it. Masson wondered at the size of the rats that could carry away a man's body, but the thought of the loaded revolver in his pocket mortified him. Probably, if the corpse had been an ordinary one, Masson would have left the rats with their spoils rather than venture into the narrow burrow, but he remembered an especially fine set of cufflinks he had observed, as well as a stick pin that was undoubtedly a genuine pearl. With scarcely a pause, he clipped the flashlight to his belt and crept into the burrow. It was a tight fit, but he managed to squeeze himself along. Ahead of him, in the flashlight's glow, he could see the shoes dragging along the wet earth of the burrow of the tunnel. He crept along the burrows as rapidly as he could, occasionally barely able to squeeze his lean body through the narrow walls. The air was overpowering with its musty stench of carrion. If he could not reach the corpse in a minute, Masson decided, he would turn back. Belated fears were beginning to crawl, maggot-like, within his mind, but greed urged him on. He crawled forward, several times passing the mouths of adjoining tunnels. The walls of the burrow were damp and slimy, and twice lumps of dirt dropped behind him. The second time he paused and screwed his head around to look back. He could see nothing, of course, until he unhooked the flashlight from his belt and reversed it. Several clods lay on the ground behind him, and the danger of his position suddenly became real and terrifying. With thoughts of Kaven making his pulse race, he decided to abandon his pursuit, even though he had now almost overtaken the corpse and the invisible things that pulled it. But he had overlooked one thing. The burrow was too narrow to allow him to turn. Panic touched him briefly, but he remembered a side tunnel he had just passed, and backed awkwardly along the tunnel until he came to it. He thrust his legs into it, backing until he found himself able to turn. Then he hurriedly began to retrace his way, although his knees were bruised and painful. Agonizing pain shot through his leg. He felt sharp teeth sink into his flesh and kicked out frantically. There was a shrill squealing and the scurry of many feet. Flashing the light behind him, the song caught his breath in a sob of fear as he saw a dozen great rats watching him intently, 
their slitted eyes glittering in the light. They were great, misshapen things, as large as cats. And behind them, he caught a glimpse of a dark shape that stirred and moved swiftly aside into the shadow. And he shuddered at the unbelievable size of the thing. The light held them for a moment, but they were edging closer, their teeth dull orange in the pale light. Masan tugged at his pistol, managed to extricate it from his pocket, and aimed carefully. It was an awkward position, and he tried to press his feet into the soggy sides of the burrow so that he should not inadvertently send a bullet into one of them. The rolling thunder of the shot deafened him for a time, and the clouds of smoke set him coughing. When he could hear again, and the smoke had cleared, he saw that the rats were gone. He put the pistol back and began to creep swiftly along the tunnel. And then, with a scurry and a rush, they were upon him again. They swarmed over his legs, biting and squealing insanely, and Masan shrieked horribly as he snatched for his gun. He fired without warning, and only luck saved him from blowing a foot off. This time, the rats did not retreat so far, but Masan was crawling as swiftly as he could along the burrow, ready to fire again at the first sound of another attack. There was a patter of feet, and he sent the light stabbing behind him. A great gray rat paused and watched him. Its long, ragged whiskers twitched, and its scabrous, naked tail was moving slowly from side to side. Masan shouted, and the rat retreated. He crawled on, pausing briefly, the black gap of a side tunnel at his elbow, as he made out a shapeless huddle on the damp clay a few yards ahead. For a second, he thought it was a mass of earth that had been dislodged from the roof, and then he recognized it as a human body. It was a brown and shriveled mummy, and with a dreadful, unbelieving shock, Masan realized it was moving. It was crawling towards him, and in the pale glow of the flashlight, the man saw a frightful gargoyle face thrust into his own. It was the passionless, death's head skull of a long-dead corpse, instinct with hellish life. And the glazed eyes, swollen and bulbous, betrayed the thing's blindness. It made a faint groaning sound as it crawled toward the sun, stretching its ragged and granulated lips in a grin of dreadful hunger. And Masan was frozen with abysmal fear and loathing. Just before the horror touched him, Masan flung himself frantically into the burrow at his side. He heard a scrambling noise at his heels, and the thing groaned dully as it came after him. Masan, glancing over his shoulder, screamed and propelled himself desperately through the narrow burrow. He crawled along awkwardly, sharp stones cutting his hands and knees. Dirt showered into his eyes, but he dared not pause even for a moment. He scrambled on, gasping, cursing, and praying hysterically. Squealing triumphantly, the rats came at him, horrible hunger in their eyes. Masan almost succumbed to their vicious teeth before he succeeded in beating them off. The passage was narrowing, 
And in a frenzy of terror, he kicked and screamed and fired until the hammer clicked on an empty shell. But he had driven them off. He found himself crawling under a great stone embedded in the roof that dug cruelly into his back. It moved a little as his weight struck it, and an idea flashed into Masson's fright-crazed mind. If he could bring down the stone so that it blocked the tunnel. The earth was wet and soggy from the rains, and he hunched himself half upright and dug away at the dirt around the stone. The rats were coming closer. He saw their eyes glowing in the reflection of the flashlight's beam. Still, he clawed frantically at the earth. The stone was giving. He tugged at it, and it rocked in its foundation. A rat was approaching, the monster he had already glimpsed. Gray and leprous and hideous, it crept forward with its orange teeth bared, and in its wake came the blind dead thing, groaning as it crawled. Masan gave a last frantic tug at the stone. He felt it slide downward, and then he went scrambling along the tunnel. Behind him, the stone crashed down, and he heard a sudden, frightful shriek of agony. Clods showered upon his legs. A heavy weight fell on his feet, and he dragged them free with difficulty. The entire tunnel was collapsing. Gasping with fear, Masson threw himself forward as the soggy earth collapsed at his heels. The tunnel narrowed until he could barely use his hands and legs to propel himself. He wriggled forward like an eel and suddenly felt satin tearing beneath his clawing fingers. And then his head crashed along something that barred his path. He moved his legs, discovering that they were not pinned under the collapsed earth. He was lying flat on his stomach. And when he tried to raise himself, he found that the roof was only a few inches from his back. Panic shot through him. When the blind horror had blocked his path, he had flung himself desperately into a side tunnel, a tunnel that had no outlet. He was in a coffin, an empty coffin into which he had crept through the hole the rats gnawed in its end. He tried to turn on his back and found that he could not. The lid of the coffin pinned him down inexorably. Then he braced himself and strained at the coffin lid. It was immovable. And even if he could escape from the sarcophagus, how could he claw his way up through five feet of hard-packed earth? He found himself gasping. It was dreadfully fetid, unbearably hot. In a paroxysm of terror, he ripped and clawed at the satin until it shredded. He made a futile attempt to dig with his feet at the earth from the collapsed burrow that blocked his retreat. If he were only able to reverse his position, he might be able to claw his way to air. Air. White, hot agony laced through his breast, throbbed in his eyeballs. His head seemed to be swelling larger and larger. And suddenly, he heard the exultant squealing of the rats. He began to scream insanely, but could not drown them out. For a moment, he thrashed about hysterically within his narrow prison. And then he was quiet, gasping for air. His eyelids closed, 
his blackened tongue protruded, and he sank down into the blackness of death with the mad squealing, the rats dining in his ears. The Graveyard Rats was written by Henry Cutner. It was read by Bruce Pretty. This has been a production of Stab Wounds Horror.